The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. All to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. That's the text that we'll be looking at today. My name is Derek Brown. If we haven't met before, that's sad for me because I haven't had an opportunity to meet you. But my name is Derek Brown. I'm one of the pastors and elders here, and I get the privilege for the next few weeks of opening God's Word to us. And we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. We're coming back to the book of Hebrews. It's the book that I've been preaching through when I come to the pulpit. And I'm really excited for today's passage because, as we'll see, it's going to be exceedingly relevant for every single one of us today. This seems to be something that was more popular in the past generation, at least when I was growing up. I don't know how popular it is today. I don't own one presently. But safety deposit boxes were something that I was enamored with when I grew up. My parents had safety deposit boxes, and there always seemed to be kind of some cool trinkets in there, maybe some heirlooms, maybe something worth some money, important documents, but I was always kind of intrigued by safety deposit boxes. You know, I was into the spy movies as well, so there's always kind of that, that aura around these safety deposit boxes. What would you find in a safety deposit box? And I thought that was kind of cool. Well, one thing I learned early on with a safety deposit box is that once you go in and you put all the things in that little container and it gets put in its slot and the door gets shut and it gets locked with the key, you get that key and you leave the bank. But if you want to come back and open that safety deposit box again, your key won't get you in there. It's a necessary part of the process, but it won't get you in. You need another key. You need a key from the banker. It's only the banker has that key and that the little door to get you into that Safety deposit box that has your precious goods, it can only be opened if you have both keys. And that's a safety measure so that no one in the bank can steal your important items and uh, someone can't take your key and unlock it as well with just that key. You need both keys. Both keys are necessary to unlock that safety deposit box. With just one, you can't get what you want. And in a similar way, we're going to be looking at not two, but three keys today that are essential for our perseverance. Keys to perseverance that the author of Hebrews is laying out in verses 19 through 25. You need all three of these keys to persevere in faith to the end of your Christian race. You can't just take one or you can't just take two because you like them. You need to take all three and only using all three will Enable us to persevere to the end. As I want us to look at here in the very first part of the passage, our passage is connected with the previous text with the word therefore. Therefore, brothers. And this is tying us back in this passage to just about everything that has come before this passage in verses or chapters 19 through, uh, sorry, chapters 7 through 10, as we come up to verse 19 here in chapter 10. Broadly speaking, the book of Hebrews is written to enable a group of struggling Jewish believers to persevere in their faith amidst persecution. It seems that they were enduring some kind of persecution from other Jews who were trying to get them to leave Jesus and come back to the old covenant ways of offering sacrifice and that kinds of thing. And so, What the author is doing is he's trying to explain in detail the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice so that 
there will be no desire whatsoever left to go back to the old covenant, seeing that the old covenant is, is dead. It's obsolete now that Christ has come. There's no need for it. That's the overall idea of the book of Hebrews. From chapter 1 through chapter 10, the author is giving us a detailed description of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in his person and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in his sacrifice for the forgiveness of all our sins. There's no need to go back to the Old Covenant. And not only that, if you do go back to the Old Covenant and forsake Christ, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins, and you now face eternal judgment because you're attempting to approach a holy God on your own. So that's what the author is doing. And now coming up in, uh, from chapter 7 through chapter 10, verse 18, the author has been laboring to articulate with precision and exaltation. This is not just some sort of cold academic exercise. You can tell that the author is loving his subject matter, and he's, he's describing with exaltation the sufficiency of Christ and his sacrifice in his new covenant ministry. Jesus Christ is the eternal priest king. He is the guarantor of a better covenant. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Save completely is what that phrase means. He has offered a perfect sacrifice that cleanses us from all our sin. No sin that's left. And therefore, through that cleansing, he cleanses our consciences. Nothing can cleanse the conscience like the blood of Jesus. There's always something left to be done, something we didn't do, something that we didn't do right. No, Jesus comes along and cleanses the conscience because he did everything right. And his sacrifice wipes away all of our sin. And not only that, but the new covenant, Jesus' new covenant, gives us a heart to obey. Isn't that wonderful? Not only does he forgive our sins, but now he changes the heart so that it desires to obey. And as we've been hearing from Cliff the past several weeks, it's a good reminder to hear that our, our, our desires will always be better than our practice, won't they? We so long to obey Christ in the way that he's worthy, and yet we, we deal with sinful flesh and our, our practice will never be as good as our desires. But nevertheless, that is a gift of the new covenant to be given a new heart that desires to obey. And Jesus accomplished this grand work of redemption by giving himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for us a sacrifice that does not need to be repeated, and it cannot be repeated. And that's the context that we now come into this passage, verses 19 through 25. When he says, therefore, he's referring back to all of what the author has just said about the sufficiency of Christ. And what I love about this passage is you don't need to guess about that. He actually tells you that's what he's referring to. And the way is being kind of redundant here, saying, therefore, and that does tie you back, but he'll, just in case you didn't get it, I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm referring to. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a high, great high priest over the house of God, okay, he's setting us up now, verse 22 onward, he's going to give us some exhortations, but up to that point, he's telling you why he put the therefore. Verses 19 through 21 are just a simple summary of what he's been telling us from chapter 7 onwards, that we have, through Jesus, confidence to stand in the very presence of a holy God whose holiness burns with fire. Why can we stand in the presence of a holy God? Because a holy God spilt his own blood in our place. 
And so now we stand clean and guilt-free before the Creator. So He tells us, because we have that confidence to go into the very heavenly presence of God where we are now to do some things. We'll talk about those things, but I want to take this phrase, this sentence here phrase by phrase. He says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Remember this phrase, holy places, this brings us back to old covenant imagery. The old covenant is important, not because it still stands, but because it always was meant to point to Jesus Christ. And in that old covenant set up what you had was a tabernacle or a temple that had in its inner room two distinct rooms, a holy place and a most holy place. And no one in Israel was allowed to go into the most holy place. In fact, most people weren't allowed to go into the the holy place, but no one in Israel was allowed to go in the most holy place because that's where God's presence dwelt. The only person that could go in and only once a year was the high priest. And the only way he could go in is if he did everything right and if he brought blood with him to atone not for only his sins, but the sins of the whole nation. And uh, the priests, just the regular priests, were forbidden from going into that most holy place. And all of Israel was kept from God's presence. But now the author says that we actually can enter into God's very presence, not a mere symbolic presence that was behind the curtain, but God's actual presence in heaven. And that should at first get us to scratch our heads and be like, how is that possible? I mean, when you read about God's holiness being revealed to someone in the Old Testament, even the holiest man in Israel, namely Isaiah, falls flat on his face and says, woe is me because of his own sin, right? So how can we stand before a holy God? Well, it's because the holy God, the Son, spilled his blood in our place. And and so we can stand before a holy God, not only stand before him, but with confidence. We can actually go to him and make requests of him because we know that he invites us in. He loves us and he will answer our prayers. See, God was angry at us due to our sin. This is the gospel. God had a just wrath that was directed at us. But the death of Jesus is so precious, so valuable in God's sight, that it fully satisfies God's requirements for justice. God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. The death of Jesus has satisfied the Father's justice. It has eternally soothed his anger And it has removed our sins completely from his face. He doesn't see our sins as now deserving judgment. Now he is on our team, so to speak, to help us root sin out of our life. Isn't that wonderful? No longer condemning us for it, but now is, is helping us to root it out. We are no longer guilty, for Christ has atoned all of our sin. If you're a believer here today, this is the truth about you. You are clean, forgiven, guiltless, accepted in Christ. And now you can enter into the very throne room of God, something the Old Testament Israelites could never even have dreamed about. You can go into God's very presence this moment through Christ and not be annihilated. And now with that introduction, the author is going to give us three practical instructions. And this is where your outline comes from on on your handouts. He's going to give us three practical instructions that follow logically, as you'll see, they follow logically from that glorious reality that we have free and unhindered access to God. 
Three clear exhortations. It's a simple outline. In light of this unfathomable privilege of full access to God, the author is giving us three indispensable keys to perseverance. All three are necessary. You can't unlock, so to speak, perseverance without all three keys. Now, you might be wondering, Derek, how can you say that these are keys to perseverance? I don't see the word perseverance anywhere in this passage. So I want to explain where I got this title from. I I believe this is exactly right. There are two reasons why we can call these following exhortations in verses 22 through 25. I believe there are two good reasons that we can call these keys to perseverance. The first is is that the, the whole letter itself is written to enable struggling Christians who are facing the difficulty of temptation and the difficulty of persecution, it's written to enable them to persevere to the end of the race because they're being tempted to give up. And you remember that part of that helping them is giving them pretty severe warnings of what happens if they don't, right? To spur them on, to keep them going. Chapters 1 through 10 have been an exposition on the sufficiency and the, the glory of Jesus Christ and the necessity of persevering in the faith and not falling away. If you've been here for the last several weeks, if I, as I've preached through the book of Hebrews, I hope that's been clear, that it is essential that we continue in the faith. Now, salvation is secure. That's not in question. In fact, we'll see in a couple of weeks, if not even next week as well, That the author believes that the warnings will be heeded, but nevertheless, it is our responsibility, those of us who profess faith in Jesus, those of us who profess a secure salvation, to continue to persevere in the faith, and here are the keys to that perseverance. See, God is giving us everything we need. See, he's given us a secure salvation, so he gives us everything we need to persevere in the faith. So I believe the first reason why we can say these are keys to perseverance is because the entire letter is written with the goal of enabling people to persevere. And in chapters 1 through 10, we're giving ma- given mainly an exposition of the person and work of Christ, and now, the, with a few exhortations here and there, but now the author is really going to ramp up his exhortations. And he's going to start really instructing us of what to do now that we know all that we know in chapters 1 through 10. The second reason we know that these are keys to perseverance is the way that he begins the next section. Now, Verses 26 through 31 are going to be the topic and the subject of next week's sermon. But I would be remiss if I didn't touch on it today to demonstrate to us that I believe that we have good reason to say that verses 22 through 25 are giving us keys to perseverance, essential keys to perseverance, things that we must do, essential. Look at verse 26. He's going to connect Verses 19 through 25 with verses 26 through 31 with the word for. For if we go on sinning deliberately. So after all I've said about entering into God's throne room and these three exhortations that we must obey, listen to this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In other words, this is what we need to hear, in other words, there are only two options. Either we humbly yield 
to the exhortations of verses 22 through 25, or we fall away into apostasy as verses 26 through 31 describe. There's no middle way. I actually found it, stu- I know this passage, but I found it stunning again that as I, as I studied it this week, that, that the author follows his exhortations in verses 22 through 25 with this strong word of warning. I want us to see that. Exhortation, exhortation, exhortation. For if we sin deliberately or keep sinning deliberately after we receive the knowledge of the truth, namely what I just said in the previous passage, something dire will happen. So these are exhortations that are serious, they are non-negotiable, and they are necessary practices to keep us persevering in the faith. And I think as we unfold them, we'll see why they're so necessary. We'll see why they're essential in the Christian life, why they are essential for persevering in the faith and making it to the end of our race. Now, I've used this illustration before, but I think it's apt again here. The Christian life is not a trouble-free walk in the park. Anybody want to attest to that? I mean, there are times in the Christian life when God smooths out our path. And there is some, there's some ease and there's some uh, rest and there are some pleasant times in the Christian life. I think we can attest to that too. But by and large... The Christian life is a life of conflict, primarily conflict against our sin and unbelief and temptations. And I think that's what one of the things that Cliff has been hitting on the last several weeks. Not to mention that we have an enemy who hates our souls and would love to make a shipwreck of our faith in a world that hates Christ and all that he stands for and produces all kinds of temptations and stumbling blocks. So the reality is, is that we are swimming for our destination upstream. The current is against us. And whenever you are swimming upstream and the current is against you, what happens the moment you start, stop swimming? Well, you stop going that way and you immediately start going the wrong direction. And what the author of Hebrews has said is that you're not only going the wrong direction when you stop swimming, but there's actually a massive cliff waterfall that you're going to get thrown over if you don't make progress upstream. So keep swimming. The moment we stop, we will get swept downstream. And I think that's what we need to see as we go into this text. These are practices that we must build and fold into our lives for the sake of our perseverance in the faith. And as I said, I think we'll, we'll be able to see why they're essential as we walk through them. So, let's look at these three keys. I'll just lay them out here. You see them in your outline, and then we'll talk one by one about them. Key number one, to persevere... To the end is draw near to God. Key number two is hold fast our confession. And key number three is to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. These are three vital keys to perseverance in the faith. Number one, draw near to God. That's verse 22. Right after he has described all that Christ has done and how we can enter with confidence into his very throne room. What a glorious reality. What a joyful reality, no matter what you're going through, no matter where you're at or what you're doing, you can enter into God's throne room. And because of that, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith. Draw near. What does that mean? It means worship. It means get close to God. If you can, if God has done everything for us to draw near, then what's the most reasonable thing to do? To draw near, right? Right? That's what he's saying, draw near. But 
There's only one way we can draw near, isn't it? With a true heart and full assurance of faith. We can't draw near if we're wavering or doubting. We can't draw near if we're not persuaded that Christ has died for our sins. We, we can't draw near if we're harboring suspicion that God may judge us or condemn us. This is why he talks about this necessary full assurance of faith. It's God's will that you have full assurance. It's not God's will that you walk around constantly wondering, Does, do I know God? Does he know me? Am I saved? Am I not? Am I condemned? Am I not? That's, that's not God's will. God's will is full assurance. Why? Because that's the only way we can draw near. It's nigh impossible to draw near to a holy God if you're harboring even the slightest suspicion that he'll judge you. But that's the reason why the author of Hebrews is labored from chapter 1 to lay out so clearly that Christ has paid for our sins. He is both God and man. He is God, therefore his righteousness is fully complete. He's, you have all the righteousness you need in Christ. He's, he's man, and so he can substitute in our place for image bearers. Because we can't draw near to God if we are doubting, right? And we know this. We know this by experience. Or maybe it's just me. I know I think a lot of us know this by experience. If we lack that assurance, it's hard to draw near to God. And we're meant to. God wants us to. And we can't draw near to God if our hearts haven't been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our whole person's cleansed with pure spiritual water. But the glory of the new covenant is that all that has happened for the believer. God has cleansed us. He has purified us. We can go into his presence. Our guilt, that which stood in between us and God, has been removed. That's why we need to be constantly hearing this, don't we? Because I know, I know for a fact that there are some here today who, who sinned, and maybe even grievously this week, and you're doubting even this morning, even this morning you had a hard time drawing near to God in worship because you had forgotten that Christ paid for even that sin. And you need to be, your mind needs to be renewed by the gospel of the glory of the gospel of Christ and what he has done on our behalf. So you can draw near with full assurance of faith. Because drawing near is what keeps us close to God and keeps us persevering in the faith. See, it's God's will that we have assurance, that subjective inward sense that we are saved, and that God's word is not only true, but true for us. That's God's will. God doesn't get glory from a group of people who are constantly unsure if they can even approach him. We'll lack joy. He won't get the joy and the obedience and the certainty of obedience that he is worthy of if we are lacking assurance. Just like a daddy won't be recognized as a good and loving daddy if his children are always kind of wondering, ooh, can I get close to daddy? Ooh, does, does he like me? Does he want me around? Like, if you saw kids like that, you'd be you'd scratching your head and be like, ooh, something's not right in that relationship. And so that father's not going to be exalted or glorified as a good and wonderful daddy if that's the way his children respond, and same way with us. God doesn't receive glory, the glory that he is due, if we are constantly holding ourselves at arm's length, wondering, mm, can I get close to God? That's not his will. His will is full assurance, which is why the author of Hebrews has been laboring for 10 chapters to give you every reason to have full assurance. And why I try to, and we try to, and we, when we preach, to always bring the gospel to bear, front and center. Christ has died for our sins, according to the scripture. He's been raised from the dead. 
And all of our righteousness is in him and not in us. And that's what the author is telling us. So the application for us is just to go deep in the truths that we've been expositing every week in the book of Hebrews. Go deep in the truths of Christ's high priestly work on our behalf so you can have the unshakable confidence that your sins are forgiven now and for all eternity so that you can go to God with the joy of full assurance of faith. Your confidence is rooted in what Christ has done, not what you have failed to do or done or will do in the future or failed to do in the future. It's fixed. It's riveted in an event that happened 2,000 years ago. And so long as Jesus is alive, so long you have free and full access to God in heaven. And then draw near to God in adoration, in praise, in song, in prayer, in heartfelt worship. Draw near to God on Sunday mornings. Draw near to God during your week in private prayer and worship, on your way to work, turn on a Spotify song list, whatever, and draw near to God. Draw near to God while your kids are down for a nap. Young mommy's going to get an amen? All right. (laughs) Actually, the beauty of the new covenant is that you can draw near to God no matter what you're doing. This is what's so great about what Jesus said when he said that the Father desires those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Those are the two conditions. You don't have to go to a certain location. You can draw near to God at home. You can draw near to God while you're laying on your bed. You can draw near to God while you're doing the dishes. You can draw near to God while you're uh, programming uh, some sort of code into your project that you're working on. You can draw near to God anywhere at any time. And that's what we're called to do. Draw near to God. Draw near to God with thankfulness and make requests about the things that give you anxiety. Draw near to God and give Him worship and praise that He is due. And especially... Draw near to God with the corporate body of saints. As we'll see, this is a vital piece of it. This Sunday morning, it's important, it's vital for our spiritual lives. Draw near to God when you're here in worship. All right, next. Draw near to God, but then the second key is to hold fast our confession of hope. Hold fast our confession of hope. What does it mean to hold something fast? Well, it's like a... mommy who holds onto her child as they are floating down a flooded river that just overtook their home. Or, it's like so many of those videos we see online, it's like the wife whose husband has just come home from an eight-month overseas military tour, and he finally comes and she hugs him, and she's not going to let go for her life. Or it's like a child who's just received a new stuffy, new stuffed animal, and there's no way you're taking that. You need to let me have the stuffed animal. You need to go to bed. Oh, you're not giving me. Okay, all right. It's like that. It's like the child is holding fast to the new stuffy. It's like the wife who won't let her husband go. It's like the mother who won't let her child go in the midst of danger. That's what it means to hold something fast. And the author is telling us to hold fast your confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Don't let it go. Don't let your loyalty Be compromised. Your loyalty to Christ be compromised. Hold it fast, as he says, without wavering. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Don't second guess your commitment to the Lord Jesus. Hold fast in the presence of even opposition or persecution. But how do we do this? Do we do it by our own strength? 
Well, of course not. The moment you try to hold fast with your own strength, you'll find how quickly you'll find out quickly how weak your grip actually is. How do we hold fast? Look at what he says. It's by faith. Just like all the Christian life, it's by faith. Here's here's where the strength come from, comes from. It comes from the faithfulness of God. For he who promised is faithful. How do you hold on to your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when everything in your life is telling you to give it up? You don't do it by your own strength. I don't do it by my own strength. I do it by believing that God is faithful to give me everything he said he would give me. Eternity of unending, unfathomable joy in his presence. The restoration of everything that I have lost here on this earth in Christ for all eternity. He's faithful. He will do it. And knowing that then, we hold fast to our confession. He has promised to save those who come to him in Christ. The temptation is to waver, isn't it, in the midst of trial and difficulty? When we face opposition for our faith in Christ, we might vacillate and start wondering if heaven is even really all the, worth all the trouble here in this life. And the author is saying, hold fast, don't let go, because God will give you everything he promised. He'll do it. The joy and eternal satisfaction of enjoying God forever in heaven will be worth it. A Christian who holds fast their confession will be a persevering Christian. A Christian who's drawing near to God will be a persevering Christian. But next, we need to look at verse 24 and 25. This is where I'm going to camp out for the rest of today's message. The next exhortation is to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Just as important as it is to draw near to God and to hold fast our confession, just as important as to do those things is to do this thing here. The author's now looking out horizontally. He wants us to look out horizontally to our other fellow believers, and he wants us to do something. Just as important it is to draw near to God and remain faithful to God under fire, so it is to give serious thought to how to stir up your brothers and sisters to love and good works. This activity is important for your perseverance. It's important for my perseverance. It's important for your perseverance and your brother or sister's perseverance. It's one of those non-negotiables. It's one of the three keys. You can't say, well, I like to draw near to God and I think I can hold fast my confession, but this considering thing, mm, it involves other people. No, thank you. Can't do that. Can't do that. The word consider is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as observe, think, ponder, perceive. And the author's already used it in chapter 3, 1, where he tells us to consider Jesus. And there, when he tells us to consider Jesus, he's telling us to think hard about Jesus so that you'll be empowered to continue persevering in, uh, in the faith and believing. We are to give thought, serious, intentional, continual thought about how to stir up our brothers and sisters to love and good works. That's a command. Not only is it a command, but it's an essential key to our perseverance, ours and theirs. Effectively motivating a brother or sister to engage in love and good deeds is not usually something that comes through spontaneity. At least not, it's not usually the case. In fact, I've seen a lot of damage done 
when a zealous brother or sister gets kind of just stirred up, or I should say gets a feeling, and then they go and get in someone else's business and tells them what they should be doing or not doing. It just it rarely goes well. The author's point here is that it takes careful thought and consideration to effectively stir up one another to love and good works. It's not just something that you can kind of just fire off. And there are many Proverbs, I think, that help us here. Proverbs 15, 18, the fool takes no, or I'm sorry, uh, Proverbs 15, 18, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Proverbs 18, 3, the fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion, right? That's kind of shoot from the hip exhortation. And as you can hear from the Proverbs, that's probably not going to go well. And I've been at the receiving end of those, and I've probably been at the giving end of those, so I ask your forgiveness if I've just come and shot from the hip with you and didn't give consideration of how to exhort you effectively. It takes serious thought. We'll talk about why that's important in a moment, but I want us to also see here this uh, phrase, this word that's stirred up by the, or this word that's translated by the phrase stir up in the ESV. It's it's actually the, the word that's used in Acts 15.29 that means sharp disagreement, if you can believe it. Uh, in this episode, this is, this is where Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement with each other because John Mark had abandoned them on a, a missions trip, and now Barnabas wants to take John Mark along with them to go to reach out to these previously planted churches. And because John Mark had abandoned them on a previous mission trip, Paul didn't like that idea. I don't think that's, that's, that's not going to work. And guess what happened to these two heavy hitters in the Christian faith, Paul and Barnabas? Well, they had a sharp disagreement. That's the same word, okay? Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? it I think it'll have implications for how we think about this, these exhortations. It's used again in Acts 17, 16 to describe how, fall, how Paul felt about the false worship in Athens. When he stepped into Athens, his heart was provoked, it was stirred up with righteous anger over all the idolatry that he saw in that place. Acts uh, 17, 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. That's the word. It was stirred up within him as he saw the city full of idols. Now, it's being used negatively in those texts. I don't think it's being used negatively here in Hebrews 10, but I do think it's being used with the same force. It's a strong word. And I, I think we got to get that. Because we're to think hard about how to provoke or stir up or stimulate our brothers and sisters to love and good works. And this stirring up may include some direct words, some sharp words, about how a person should be using their gifts to serve the body? It may not always, right? We're going to talk about creativity here. I think there's, we, we got to know each other. We got to know each other's strengths and weaknesses and circumstances. And figure, okay, how can, how can I motivate them? Sometimes it'll be a gentle word. Sometimes it'll be a strong word. Either way, we're trying to figure out how to provoke them. Get them out of their seat. It might take a series of sharp words to some Christians who appear to be wasting their lives and only living for themselves. It might. It just might. And, and sometimes it does. But it must and always include thinking about a person's place in life, their circumstances, their gifts, so we can effectively motivate others. You can't motivate one person to love and good works the same way you would vote, uh, pro, uh, uh, 
motivate another person to love and good works. We're all different. We're all unique. For example, I think you'll encourage an older woman in the faith differently than you would encourage a younger woman in the faith who has, who's a mommy with young kids at home. If you don't give careful thought to distinguish between these two ladies' place in life, you may, be, you may end up placing burdens on one or the other that they were never intended to bear. You may find yourself, as an example, exhorting the mommy with young children to get busy with evangelism, to start a Bible study, to lead a woman's prayer group, to volunteer at the local woman's shelter, and so on. Thinking, like, I'm just stirring her up to love and good works. What's your problem, Derek? Well, in reality, it may be that the older woman who has children are now out of the house is better able to fulfill those things. Because of their respective places in life, their time and their schedules and their current responsibilities. And because of those differences, you're going to encourage and exhort one person differently than you would the other. And that's why the author tells us to consider. We've got to think about it. How can I motivate? What's going on here? What's their situation? What are their gifts? What are their struggles? What are their temptations? We have to think about the person specifically and offer tailor-made exhortations, not just generic shoot-from-the-hip ideas. But why love and good works? You ever think about that? What's the deal here? Why, why should we be stirring up to love and good works? Well, very simply, because love is the mark of the Christian. Jesus says in John 13, 34 through 35, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Remember, the aim of this letter is to enable these listeners to persevere in the faith. But if you are persevering in the faith, you will be persevering in love too. They go hand in hand. You persevere in the faith, you'll be persevering in love. If you're persevering in love for other believers, you'll be persevering in the faith. Indeed, Persevering in love is actually one of the primary indications that you are persevering in the faith. And that's exactly why the author said this in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Right after he leveled this blistering warning, he said this. He said, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust to overlook the work and the love that you have shown for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. Do you see the connection there? Provoking and stirring up your brother and sister to love and good works is just the same thing as exhorting them to continue in the faith. It's the same thing. That's why I believe the author uses such a strong word here because it's a matter of perseverance. It's a matter of their perseverance. Think about how to stir up them, those hearts, to love and good works. Why? Because a heart that is persevering in love and good works is a heart that is persevering in the faith. And therefore, we have to use sometimes strong and straightforward words. We've got to shake people up. It's not all the time. I'm not suggesting that we go out the door today and start blowing people up. That would actually indicate a lack of consideration, wouldn't it? But sometimes as you think and as you ponder and you consider their place in life that it may end up with some strong words. But I want us to see here, this is crucial now, 
I want us to see the connection between verses 24 and 25. The construction of this verse and how it connects, these two verses connect together, indicate that the stirring up in verse 24 cannot happen if the Christians are neglecting to meet together in verse 25. Listen to what he says. And let us consider, that is the command, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. The stirring up of one another to love and good works can only happen in a context where believers are not forsaking the local fellowship, where they are regularly meeting together. The phrase not neglecting and the contrasting phrase, but encourage one another, as he says, but encourage one another all the more, as you see the day drawing near, that contrasting phrase along with the the phrase not neglecting indicate that corporate fellowship is essential to fulfilling the instruction to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You can't do, you can't fulfill the command of verse 24 without verse 25. See that? You can only consider how to stir up one another to love and good works by not neglecting to meet together. And the opposite of neglecting to meet together is encouraging one another. It's all tied together. So here's the implication. If you are forsaking, and that's what the word means there. It's translated neglect. It's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as forsake, abandon even. If you are forsaking regular and consistent fellowship with a local body of believers, you can't really get to know them well enough to consider how to stir them up to love and good works. Because we need to know each other to effectively motivate one another. You, you, just, you can't have one without the other. We need to know each other's strengths and weaknesses and circumstances and trials and opportunities and abilities and life stage and maturity. That's knowledge that you can't just walk in and, and, and get on a bulletin. You've got to get to know somebody. How can you thoughtfully motivate fellow believers to love and good works if you don't know these things about them? I think the answer is obvious. You really can't. Now, the author knew full well that there were people, there were Christians in the first century that were forsaking the fellowship. And it was a problem then, and it's a problem today as well. And he calls it a habit because, like any habit, this this neglect of corporate fellowship and worship had become a settled practice that had developed over time. And now, guess what? Like any habit, think about your bad habits that you've got. Like any habit, what? It's hard to break. It's a habit, it's a custom, it's hard to break, it's hard to get over. Because once you get used to doing your own thing and filling your schedule with what you want to do or what you think you must do, it becomes mighty difficult to carve out time for weekly fellowship and worship. Once you get a little taste of that uh, extra cushion in your schedule, being able to sleep in on Sunday after a long week of work, or maybe just hang out during the week at your house on the weeknights, or once you start relying on that paycheck to get you by working on days when you could be in fellowship, it is exceedingly difficult to re-engage with the body of Christ. The neglect becomes a habit, and the habit is hard to break. And so the authors of Hebrews is exhorting us to not forsake the meeting together and allow it to become a habit or a custom, as it does with some people. What are we to do? We're to regularly be together in order to encourage one another. And he ties this to the coming of Christ. He says, all the more, as you say, the, see the day drawing near. That's re- reference to the day of the return of Christ. 
The closer we get to the, the return of Christ, the more we should be exhorting one another. Why? Because we all need help to persevere in the faith. And we all know the struggles and the temptation that lie both in our hearts and outside in the world. As we ponder the reality of Christ's return, an event that draws closer with every passing day, and as you meditate upon the breathtaking realities of heaven and hell and salvation and judgment, and the preciousness of every soul. I just had a friend this past week in high school, a good buddy of mine, pass away at age 44, boom, just like that on a, on a run. Just like that, poof, he was gone. The preciousness of every soul, the necessity to persevere in the faith, we should be exhorting one another all the more. Our, our encouragement should increase, not decrease over time. There might be some of you you're here today where you have been abandoning fellowship, and this is your first time in a long time. Or some of you who are just listening to this message online, you have forsaken corporate fellowship. You've made it a habit to not come regularly to the corporate gathering, to fellowship with other believers, to cultivate relationship within the local church context for the sake of obeying verse 24. You're on the margins of church life. You're floating from church to church, or you're just not going to church, you're just tuning in online, or maybe you just hear the preaching and you zip out the door. And I think what you need to recognize, you need to wake up and recognize that you have disabled yourself by doing that. You've disabled yourself from obeying verse 24. Verse 24 is you're not, you're unable to fulfill the considering of how to stir up one another to love and good works if you have abandoned the church. So by, by doing that, by, by abandoning or forsaking the fellowship, by neglecting it, you've disabled yourself now from obeying verse 24. You can't stir up anyone to love and good works because you don't know them well enough to do that. And the reason why this should be a concern for us is because a neglect of the body indicates a, love, a lack of love for the body, doesn't it? Why? Why would, how could I draw that conclusion? Because God's designed the church like this, and I'll use myself as an example, but it could be applied to every believer here, every member here at this church. If you've committed to this local body and seek out regular fellowship, over time you'll get to know me in such a way that you'll be able to effectively stir me up to love and good works through your thoughtful encouragement and exhortations. And you guys have done that so much in my life. I'm a pastor, but I don't know where I would be without CBC and the relationships that I have here, and you stirring me up regularly to love and good works. A lot of you know me well, and you know how to stir me up. But someone who neglects fellowship can't really get to know me, and therefore can't stir me up to love and good works. And I'm not saying you need to get to know me, but I am saying you need to get to know other people in the body so that we can all be working together to stir up each other to love and good works. But if I'm not being stirred up to love which is a primary mark of the Christian, then I'm going to be in danger of falling away from the faith. So how can you claim to love other believers, which is one of the primary marks of the genuine Christian, if you neglect corporate fellowship, if you live on the margins of the church? Well, we need to see how central the local church is to the life of the believer. The author has brought this out in Hebrews chapter 3. We've talked about it. There are the the command is negative. We don't want something to happen, namely the hardening of the heart 
and being carried away by the deceitfulness of sin. So we're to encourage and exhort one another every day. That's Hebrews chapter 3. Here in Hebrews chapter 10, it's a positive instruction. We want something to happen. What do we want to happen? We want each person in the body to be stirred up to love and good works. But if you are a Christian who conducts your life independently from the local body, you will be taking yourself away from the soul-preserving, faith-sustaining exhortations and motivations of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is not a good place to be. A Christian who's on the periphery of the local church is a Christian who is in spiritual danger. You've disabled yourself from fulfilling a command in Scripture. And you can't be stirred up and you can't stir up others to love and good works. Now, I've been a Christian for 24 years. And a good portion of that time, I've been in active Christian ministry. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who have been who have forsaken and abandoned the local church by and large. Either they come just occasionally or they're just not coming at all saying they're going to have church in their house or whatever by themselves. In every single instance, these professing Christians had developed strange doctrinal views, they were ensnared in various sins, and they are easily tempted to sin and folly. Or they are making patently foolish choices, or they are living selfishly, or they are often proud and arrogant, or what is often the case, all of the above. Every single instance. And their pride was usually expressed in how they would resist my exhortations and the exhortations of other Christian, other believers, and they are blind to their own immaturity. And in a great irony, I've, ex- I've seen this so many times, in a great irony, a believer who has separated themselves from the local church often thinks of themselves as more mature than other believers. They start looking down their noses at the the American church and the worldly church and all this nonsense when, in fact, they're the ones who are immature. But they can't see it. Why can't they see it? Because they've removed themselves from the accountability of the local body. They're no longer being able to be stirred up to love and good works, and they've developed an overinflated view of themselves and their Christian maturity. Every single time I talk to someone, this is the case. Someone who has forsaken the local assembly yet still calls themselves a Christian. Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Solomon knew what he was talking about. He really did. I've never met a healthy Christian who's lived his or her life apart independently from the Christian church. I never have. I, I, show me. I, I think biblically speaking, it's, it's not a possibility. The reason why I think we see this so often is because Scripture tells us that God has designed salvation and sanctification in a way that we simply won't grow or remain spiritually healthy apart from the local church. As Hebrews 3 tells us, we'll become enamored with sin and hardened by it. And as this text tells us, we'll be unable to be stirred up to a very vital component of the Christian life, namely love and good deeds exercised towards one another. So what's the application for today as we close? The application today is to draw near to God. Draw near to God in worship, in prayer. Even today, let's get on our face uh, at home, close our prayer closet if we're able to, and, and, and have prayer and time with God. Draw near to God even here as we come to communion. It's such a perfect day to have communion, and we'll talk about it in a minute. Draw near to God. Hold fast your confession. Through faith in God's promises, through faith in God's faithfulness, 
let's hold fast our confession even in the midst of trouble and difficulty, even in the midst of people challenging our faith. And finally, we need to renew our commitment to the local church and dig deeply into the relationships that God has given us here so that we can thoughtfully consider how to stir up one another to love and good works and then receive that thoughtful ministry from our fellow brothers and sisters. These are the keys to perseverance in the faith. Let's pray and then go to communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text and and what a wonderful text it is. It is so well balanced between doctrinal truth and these necessary exhortations, all of which are essential in our Christian life. God, I pray that you'd help us see how essential it is that we be deeply rooted in the local church. It doesn't have to be CBC, but it needs to be a sound Christian, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. I pray that all those who hear this message would hear the truth of Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and to see how central the local church is to their perseverance in the faith, their growth in grace. Help us all to be thoughtful about how we can stir up one another to love and good works. I pray that everyone listening to this message would persevere with joy, with fruitfulness, and a persevering love for you and for the saints. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.